Welcome back to another episode on What the Autism. This podcast is for anyone who is struggling with understanding what autism is and how we can better empower our autism community through research-proven methods. In each episode, I will be sharing with you groundbreaking research and how the diagnosis of autism can often be misunderstood. If you're a new listener to our podcast, I highly recommend you start from episode one to catch up to speed on various terminology and concepts. Now let's get started. In today's episode, we'll be first talking about the diagnostic criteria of autism and what qualifies a child to be diagnosed with ASD. Then we'll be covering two research reviews and articles about the diagnostic criteria. And then lastly, we'll be covering some helpful resources and what you can do to be more autism aware. In a segment of the first episode, we reviewed the prevalence rate of autism in the U.S., being at 1 in 54. With almost 2% of the U.S. population of children being diagnosed, it's critical that we understand the signs of autism and the diagnostic criteria. So what are the exact qualifications that a child has to meet in order to be formally diagnosed with ASD? I'll be reviewing with you some technical language along the way to make it easier to understand some of the literature reviews and research that are out there. The first thing to review is the DSM-5. It's the most current manual that classifies all mental disorders in the U.S. It stands for Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. The DSM-5 was published back in 2013, and in that manual, the autism diagnosis had some major significant changes in the diagnostic criteria. The first qualification that a child needs to meet is the presence of persistent deficits in social communication and social interaction. There are three segments to this section in order for a child to be formally diagnosed with autism. The first segment is the child showing deficits in social-emotional reciprocity, which basically refers to the give-and-take behavior within social interactions. So some examples are when a child fails to have normal back-and-forth conversations with others, um, they have low ability to share interests and emotions with others, and they fail to initiate or respond to social interactions. Um, Now, these aren't all that go into this part of the segment, um, but these are just some examples. The second segment is the child showing deficits in nonverbal communicative behaviors used for social interaction. So some common examples are abnormalities in eye contact and body language, deficits in understanding and use of gestures, and a lack of facial expressions and nonverbal communication. The third segment is the child showing deficits in developing, maintaining, and understanding relationships. For example, they'll have a very difficult time adjusting their behaviors to suit various social contexts. Children with ASD will have difficulties in sharing imaginative play or in making friends, and some children will even have very strong disinterest in being with other peers. All three of these segments in this section need to be present in order for a child to be formally diagnosed with autism. Now, the second portion of the diagnostic criteria is the restricted repetitive patterns of behavior, interest, or activities. There are four segments to this section, but only two of these segments are required in order to meet the qualifications for this section. The first segment is what we call stereotypy, or repetitive motor movements. So they can either be using any objects or their speech, or their own body. So some examples of simple motor movements using the body is um, the classic body rocking, the swaying, the hand flapping, excessive jumping, the hand um, flicking. Those are some examples. Another example in terms of objects would be where children are lining up their own toys or objects um, non-functionally. So some children with ASD that engage in this behavior will collect various objects like books, pencils, kitchen utensils, blocks, anything that's within their range, and start lining them up. 
Another example vocally or by speech is what we call echolalia. Um, this is unsolicited repetition of vocalizations. So some children will engage in the repetition of specific sounds, and some will engage in the repetition of words and phrases. So these children sometimes engage in this for various reasons. Sometimes it could be um, in terms of soothing their anxiety. Sometimes it can also be because they're enjoying the, um, the automatic sensation they're getting from their throat by making these sounds or how it sounds to their ears. So it really depends on the specific child, but these are some common examples or some reasons as to why um, these children will engage in some of these behaviors. The second segment of this section is when a child shows their insistence on sameness, inflexible adherence to routines, or ritualized patterns, or verbal nonverbal behavior. So children with ASD will sometimes show extreme distress with simple small changes in their environment. So this can range from the placement of specific objects in their environment, or they'll insist on taking the same route to a specific location like school or markets or their home. Um, or sometimes they'll insist on eating the same food every day. Um, they'll show difficulties with transitions in schools, at home, wherever it may be. Um, they'll show rigid patterns of thinking. Um, they'll have very specific greeting rituals. Um, so these are some common examples of when a child with ASD insists on having the same routines um, where they're very inflexible or they'll almost create this ritualized patterns or traditions for themselves. The third segment is when a child is highly restricted, um, has fixated interests that are abnormal in intensity or focus. So some examples are when a child exhibits very strong attachment to some unusual objects. So I've had clients that have had obsession with glue, their own shoes, or specific drinking cups. Um, children with ASD may also exhibit perseverative interest in specific TV shows, movies, people, objects that may come off across to the average person as almost obsessive. The last segment is when a child exhibits hyper or hyporeactivity to sensory input, or they show unusual interest in sensory aspects of the environment. So some examples are um, children with ASD will sometimes show indifference to pain or temperature. So I've had clients that had to be supervised at all times during bath time because they weren't physically able to detect that specific water temperatures were too hot. Um, there are some children that also show adverse um, response to specific sounds or textures. Um, some children will excessively smell or touch objects. Um, they'll also sometimes have visual fascination with lights or movements like the spinning of a fan or a car wheel. So these are the four segments to the section covering the restricted and repetitive patterns of behavior and interest. So in order for a child to be formally diagnosed with autism, they need to um, meet at least two of these four segments in this section in order to qualify. But this is also in addition to the first portion that we went over, which was the social communication and social interaction. So in addition to these two qualifications or criteria that we just went over. There are three additional criteria that need to be met and they're pretty simple. Um, so part three is symptoms must be present in the early developmental period. Um, part four is symptoms cause, um, these symptoms need to cause clinically significant impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of current functioning. And then lastly, these disturbances are not better explained by intellectual disability or by the global developmental de delay. So as you guys can see, the diagnostic criteria can be quite complex. 
Um, and with the DSM-5 updates, um, with every autism diagnosis, they're in addition to the changes that they made in the diagnostic criteria, they also added in various severity levels. Um, the criteria includes three severity classifications. So there's level one, meaning that the child requires support. Level two is when a child requires substantial support. And level three is when a child requires very substantial support. So these three levels um, come in, in addition to the, um, the autism diagnosis itself. So what the psychologist would typically do is take the three different levels and classify it to each section. So the social communication and social interaction section, they'll classify as a level one, two, or three. And the same with the restricted and repetitive patterns of behavior and interest, where they'll rank it as a level one, two, or three. There are two articles that I wanted to share with you guys today. Um, the first one was published back in June 2016. It was titled Severity of Autism Spectrum Disorders, Current Conceptualization and Transition to DSM-5. Um, so the authors are Margaret Mailing and Mark Tasse. Um, but basically, the two authors talk about the DSM-5 and how it heavily relies on, quote-unquote, the clinical judgment in order to make the severity determination. And it doesn't explicitly mention the use of standardized measures for determining like the severity level of the social communication or the restricted and repetitive behavior deficits. Um, so basically, what they're saying is, you know, like, how do we measure a specific child according to the level one, two, and three. So when we're talking about um, the requiring support, requires substantial support, and requires very substantial support, there aren't any quantification to how these are assigned. And so these two authors were talking about how um, the DSM-5 currently relies on that clinical judgment from the psychologist or the diagnosing clinician. Um, so it makes it very hard to you know, standardize that across all psychologists. The second article is a report from a team of researchers from the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center in Nashville, Tennessee. They released a review back in February 2014 surfacing very similar issues. They were suggesting to propose revisions to the DSM-5 to include quantitative methods for differentiating between the three different levels. So I'll be posting these um, both of these research articles and reviews on our Facebook page, What the Autism, if you're interested in reading these articles for yourself later. Another resource I wanted to point you guys over to is a quick screening method. So it's called the Modified Checklist for Autism and Toddlers, basically known as the MCHAT. This is a quick 20 questions checklist to see if there are any strong signs that your child might potentially have an autism diagnosis. Um, again, this is not to um, this is not to formally diagnose your child with ASD, but it is a checklist to see if there's any strong symptoms or signs that you should take your child over to a psychologist to get formally assessed and diagnosed. Um, but this checklist is valid for children between the between um, 16 to 30 months of age. The reason why I wanted to provide you guys with a resource such as the MCHAT um, is because sometimes it's really hard to identify um, exactly what we're looking for, right? I, I know that we just talked about the diagnostic criteria and some examples of what the symptoms 
um, of autism might look like. But, you know, there are a lot of difficulties that come across a lot of our parents and community members when it comes to suspecting any of these symptoms. Um, so, you know, sometimes, you know, the child may be your first child, so it's hard to know what type of behaviors and milestones your child should be meeting by specific ages. So it's completely understandable that so many of our parents aren't really taking actions um, onto these suspicions um, until their daycare or even their pre-K teachers are suggesting for an appointment with a psychologist or their pediatrician is making that recommendation. But by then, so much time has passed. So completing a quick, easy screening like these 20 questions um, can kind of assist you in determining if your suspicions for you know a potential autism diagnosis for your child is valid or not. Um, but please note that this is just a quick screening. It doesn't officially diagnose your child with autism, but it is a quick questionnaire to help you identify what type of behaviors should be exhibited by your toddler. And if you have any suspicions or questions, please reach out to your child's psychologist um, and family pediatrician. I'll post the MCHAT questionnaire to be available on our Facebook page, What the Autism. You can also go to MCHAT screen screen.com for the official MCHAT checklist. On today's episode, we discussed about the diagnostic criteria and the different symptoms that a child with autism might exhibit. So if there's anyone in your life that is showing symptoms that is raising your suspicion for the autism diagnosis, it's a difficult conversation to have, but early intervention is key. If you are a parent and you're suspecting your child might have ASD, please seek out a psychologist that can assess your child ASAP. Overlooking these suspicions or being in a state of denial is all very typical for a lot of our families, and that is okay, but I recommend that you don't take too long in sitting with these emotions. The best thing that you can provide to your child right now is immediate treatment and help. You know, weeks and months can fly by as you're waiting on paperwork, completing research on the most effective treatment, you know, sitting with these emotions and, you know, trying to cope with the fact that your child might potentially be diagnosed with autism. You know, these are weeks and months that you have as an adult, but the neurological development of our children cannot afford that kind of length of time with this diagnosis being left untreated. Some of the most successful patients that I've had in the past started receiving treatment as early as 18 months and no later than three years. It's not to say that any child that is older doesn't have a chance. Treatment is beneficial at any age, and I recommend that all children on the autism spectrum receive treatment, but it is to emphasize the importance of early intervention. As a child gets older, their ability to understand and process information becomes increasingly complex, which can oftentimes create difficult patterns of behaviors to treat, but when a child comes to us between the ages of 18 months to three years or even younger, there are very little behaviors and processing that's been developed for us to go in and treat them. So I highly recommend that we try our best to make sure that early intervention is an option for a lot of our children that may potentially have the autism diagnosis. But this wraps up another episode here at What the Autism. If you have any questions on today's episode or you have any recommendations for future topics and discussion, please feel free to email us at whattheautismpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at What the Autism for any helpful resources and updates in regards to our discussion topics. 
Please note that this podcast has been created to discuss my personal experiences and opinions and is not a means of medical or psychological recommendations. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical or psychological advice to treat any diagnoses and or conditions in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Please consult your own physician or psychologist for any symptoms and recommendations. But stay tuned for episode three, where we'll be discussing the current treatments for individuals with autism and what may be the most effective treatment for your child. We upload a new episode on your favorite podcast platform every Wednesday. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to follow and subscribe to our podcast channel, and I'll see you in episode three.